Right there, Liam here. Regular listeners will be like, what the fuck? Where's the theme tune? Where's the band sponsorship of the podcast? I fucking hate change. Stars, just calm down, my friend. You're going to like this because our buddies at 2000 Trees Festival want to give you 10% off. Well, not you particular, just you, everyone listening to this podcast. 2000 Trees Festival takes place from the 6th to the 9th of July in Cheltenham. For people who don't know geography of the UK, it's only a couple of hours from London. This year's headliners are Idols, Fries, and Jimmy World. The lineup also includes one of my favourite bands at the moment, Not Loose, and friends of the pod, Laura Jane Grace, Chubby and the Gang, Anti-Flag, and Pup. I want to let you know that I'm taking no money to promote this festival. I'm doing it because 2000 Trees is a truly independent rock festival, and it's fucking fun, a great space to hang out, and that's why it's won a shit ton of awards. You can even go back to episode 16 of this podcast where I spoke to James Scarlett, one of the founders of 2000 Trees Festival. So if you're searching for an outside festival this summer with a killer lineup, then let's all go hang out at 2000 Trees from the 6th to the 9th of July. So how do you get the 10% off your tickets? Well, quite simply, all you need to do is use the promo code PUNKSINPUBS, one word, at checkout. Once again, use the promo code PUNKSINPUBS, one word, at checkout. Right, back to normality. Everyone calm down. It is okay. This is Jay from the Punk Ethics Collective and you are listening to the fantastic Punks in Pubs podcast. Liam and the gang have invited us on for a bit of DIY sponsorship, updating you on what Punk Ethics are up to before we settle in for another cracking conversation with another punk legend. We launched our campaign Punks Against Sweatshops a few years ago now and after a few pandemic related delays we are finally bringing it to the stage with a live gig at the legendary 100 Club on London's Oxford Street on the 19th of March. We have some of the fine punks that are involved in the campaign performing including Petrol Girls, Steve Ignorant Slice of Life, Boy Poloy and In Evil Hour as well as the punk poet Paul Case, Acker, Captain of the Rent and comedy activist legend and secret punk rocker himself, Mark Thomas. Tickets are on sale at wegottickets.com. Grab yours now before they're gone. That's all from me. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Cheers. Welcome to the Punks in Pubs podcast. My name is Liam Bird and I am here to distract you from the fuckery that is going on in the world at the moment. As I record, uh, Russia have decided to fully invade Ukraine. Uh, Thoughts go out to all the people of Ukraine because that's what they need right now, isn't it? Thoughts. (sighs) fuck me this podcast is meant to be a distraction from all parts of life of what's going on and i hope it's helped people during covid i know it has people have reached out to me however i don't think this podcast can help you during shelling 
of a war. <laughs> this should fucking laugh. But let's give it a go. You know, you never know. People might rally around a podcast and see hope in it. You never know. Uh, I can remember Fat Mike said a revolution will happen through a podcast. I mean, that fucker's got a podcast now as well, so you never know. It might be him. It might be him who brings about world peace. I doubt it. He, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants to bring around world peace, but you never know. He might. You never know. Anyway, let's move on in a, in a true Mark Maron-style tone change and subject matter. If you don't listen to Mark Maron, none of that will make sense to you. Uh, you may have noticed at the start of the podcast that we are supporting 2000 Trees Festival. We are doing this why am I saying we? I'm doing this because the, the festival were there at the early stages of this podcast to offer support. So we are doing the same now. If you have not got your tickets yet, you can get 10% off your tickets using the promo code Punks and Pubs. But I'll talk about that in a second. What I want to tell you is that the festival on social media are doing a thing called Seven Days of Trees, whereabouts they are releasing the name of bands who are playing the festival so go and give them a follow on social media at 2000 trees the number 2000 and uh, see if there's any band who have been announced that you are stoked to go and watch one of the bands who didn't get announced in the seven days of trees but have been announced are turnstile one of the fucking greatest bands going at this point in time i watched them recently in london and their show was fucking phenomenal so if you get the opportunity to go and watch turnstile you go watch turnstile if you get the opportunity to watch turnstile in a festival go and do it the opportunity to do that is at 2000 trees festival that takes place from the 7th of july over that weekend you can do that with 10% off your ticket. So as you go to 2000 Trees website, put in Punks and Pubs at checkout and you will get 10% off because we are friends. Right, let's crack on with my guest for this episode. He is the bassist of The Damned. His name is Paul Gray. <laughs> So I sat down with Paul via Zoom after COVID really fucked up our original plans to talk in September 2021. It was great to finally get the opportunity to talk to him. And the reason I wanted to talk to Paul wasn't originally, I didn't go to him saying, hey, let's talk about the damned and punk rock. I, I approached him and said, hey, let's talk about veg and herbs. Uh, because Paul created a YouTube show talking about how you can grow veg in your garden or on your on your windowsill to take your mind away from covid and i did just that and and for people who may have listened to other episodes i spoke about how my garden really helped me during lockdown mentally so we talk about that but obviously we talk about music as well uh, we talk about how staring up at a stage at a 20 something lemmy inspired him to pick up the bass uh, we talk about his times with other bands away from the damned including ufo professor and the mad men and his brief stint with andrew ridley formerly of wham paul also talks about his time touring with eddie and the hot rods in particular when he went on tour with the ramones great story there coming up paul also opens up about living with tinnitus and how having to put down his bass because of his hearing damage took into a very dark period of time in his life. 
Of course, we talk about the damned, the recording process, touring, and then also eventually leaving and then rejoining. I'll be back after my chat with Paul, but until then, enjoy. assume is a uh, very stormy very rainy cardiff for, for people listening from outside the uk we're currently getting battered by 80 to 90 miles an hour winds you were just saying that you've just had like a small pot knock over that's it it's called storm Eunice. eu it's it's the eu getting us back all <laughs> <a> conspiracy <laughs> this ain't the joe rogan podcast we're not yeah, going down that route i mean we're going to talk about a lot of things we're going to talk about the down we're going to talk about hot rods and of course uh, we're going to talk about when you try to make um, Andrew Ridley into a rock band. But before we start talking about any of that, I want to talk about... I miserably on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about gardening, because that some people listening to this may have already clicked off, and I hope they are kind of sticking around. We will talk about the good stuff that is punk. But you and other members of the band created a YouTube channel a while back called The Damn Show. And during COVID lockdown in the UK, you started to create a gardening content for the youtube channel called punk rock planting the premises was to uh, show that anyone can plant veg and herbs even if you didn't really have a garden and this is why i reached out to you originally because i reached out and i told you that by watching you doing your gardening kind of inspired me to actually use the garden i've got in my backyard because i'm very fortunate to have that space during lockdown and i really got into gardening i found it weirdly becoming quite obsessive and finding it as, as like a way to kind of really cleanse my mind of all the rest of the crap that's going on in the world. I mean, was that the reason why you started it for yourself, was just to step away and do something you love? I started doing it when I got tinnitus, actually 20, 27, 28 years ago. Actually, probably more than that. It was a kind of good way to try and tune out from it. You know, you're at, at, outside and you were doing stuff and it wasn't noisy and you tended to just kind of get lost in it. And I just found it, you know, quite relaxing and chilling. And it was, you know, it was quite fun planting stuff and watching it not die. <laughs> that is a big part. Yeah, and then eating it even better. Yeah. I mean, I, if I'm honest, I'm a guy who does not like my veg. I would try and push that shit around my plate until I until I get all my good stuff and then I'll go back to the veg. But I did find myself, because I growed it, I found myself eating more veg because I created it. It's like I from a seed to on my table, it was like some real form of achievement. And you get weirdly um euphoric when when you see like uh I was growing courgettes and you just see like your first courgette like proper growing. It's like, oh wow, I've done that. And then you can't stop them. They just keep on growing. Well yeah, potatoes 
never getting rid of those fuckers. They are yeah, yeah, they just yeah. sprout up. Even when you think you've got them all out, you'll find another one and they'll grow next year. The nice thing is, you know, you, you just buy a packet of seeds for a quid or two, plant them and most of them come up, you know, and you don't need a massive plot of acreage. You can, you can just bung them in a pot or a grow bag or something. And they taste so much nicer than the stuff you buy in the supermarkets, you know, because all the greengrocers have gone. I'm old enough to remember greengrocers. <laughs> Three pounds of King Edward's my good man. And some of those excellent Kelmerdon peas, you know. You can grow them yourself now. But I did that because the I think the, the band's managers said, you know, let's try and create something to keep things ticking over and engaged with with the punters and stuff, you know. And I didn't really know what to do. So I, I just thought, I, well, one thing I can do in, in this um, scenario is get out my garden and potter about. So I, I just thought I'd get out my garden and potter about and film it. Were you surprised by the feedback that you got from people? I've had more feedback on that than for my bass playing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the wrong career. There you go. You got you got a, a second job in gardener's world. Yeah. No, I was actually. I I I still get. I mean, you. You know, I still get people mention it a couple couple of years later, and it's really good. You know, if you if you can, you know, introduce people to the joys of, of getting out there and you know getting a bit of air and growing stuff that that you can eat that isn't full of pesticides and you know and and all that stuff that most of our veg are doused in now you know, unless they're organic, which are heinously expensive, then it was, uh, yeah, it's a good thing to do. But I, I was quite surprised and I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, enough people liked it to make it worthwhile doing. No, no emails from Alan Titchmarsh or anything like that saying? No offers from, uh, you know, Channel 4 to, to have my own punk rock planting show. No, I'm still there, Channel 4, if you're listening. <laughs> Probably not what else going on. <laughs> I was going to say, as a man whose livelihood is is like partly based on getting up in front of a live audience and performing, I mean, how did you take the, the lockdown? Like, how, how how difficult was it for you? Not financially, but like just emotionally. I mean, I live out in the country anyway. I live out in the sticks. So I'm used to being quite solitary. I kind of like being quite solitary. But the hardest thing was not going to see me my girlfriend who lives sort of 30 miles away and there was two coppers living in the the little road she lives in so it was <laughs> a bit difficult but for, for the first bit I, I kind of quite liked it you know I like walking the roads without people trying to knock me over or off their bike and you know without seeing the contrails up and it, it was quite good but after three months you you start getting itchy feet you think oh when's this bloody thing going to end I mean luckily I'm kind of quite self-contained you know when I'm not on a stage, I do the opposite. I get out the garden, I go out on a bike for hours and then go up stomping up the hills from where I live. So it wasn't that bad to start with. The, the worst thing is, you know, seeing the months on in looming where, you know, you should have been in America or Australia or, or something and, you, and you're not, you, you're kind of stuck at home. So, but luckily I was finishing off, well, actually just started a record with with Captain, the, the last Sensible Grey Cells album. And we started it just before lockdown hit. Oh, it's all very hazy now, isn't it? It's just been so mad. A couple of years ago anyway. Yeah. So we continued with that. I mean, I, you know, like most people, musicians know, I've got Logic on my MacBook and that's my recording studio. So Captain and I were able to continue writing that album. Most of it was written on, on our laptops pinging files to and fro of songs and he'd send me stuff and I put keyboards and bass in it. I send him stuff. He put keyboards and guitar in it. And we just kept swapping ideas and writing stuff for, you know, potentially for 
any new damn stuff that might be on the horizon. And so I knocked a website up. I thought, well, I, I can't keep on with, you know, cause if I'm not touring, I, I'm not earning any money. You know, I, I don't get paid from anything else, you know get paid a session fee for doing the damn stuff and that's it so that was looking a bit grim <laughs> i can't live on nothing um except courgettes so <laughs> i knocked a website out called poor gray base online and just sort of punched myself about for session work online session work and i just really interesting stuff come in i mean stuff from czechoslovakia project a guy was doing in america with um david bowie's keyboard player um a kind of a jazzy thing matt webster from the midlands stuff from like all over so that that was fun, and that kept me busy. And then towards the end of it, I can't really talk about it at the moment because it's not been announced, but I got another project going with um, three guys from bands of a similar ilk and era to myself, which is really exciting. And we've just finished an album, and we've just got to just finish and get the deal sorted for that. So more news on that over the next few months so i've been really i've actually kept myself busy it's kind of interesting you spoke about like finding a deal to put out the album i mean you've been doing music though or performing music like in a very early age what what differences are there now like from trying to find a label because i think a lot of people think well why do you need a label now like just do it yourself uh i'm too old to do it myself (laughs) (laughs) you know my son, who's 17, he just raises his eyebrows when I ask anything and just sort of tuts, <laughs> slinks out the room. Um, yeah, you can do it yourself, but it's you still got to have, you know, some sort of distribution. And with, with this particular project, we're lucky that we had a, a, a couple of labels kind of up for it from the off. And the one we've just ended up with, um, I've just been speaking to them today about, you know, the, the next step forward is is really quite exciting. I mean, they, they basically we've we've done it. You know, we own all the rights. We've we've done the recording, and again, we've done it all. I mean, I'd never worked with two of the guys before. Worked with one of them, the other two, um, one I knew, one the guitarist I knew, the other guitarist and singer I didn't know. I knew his band very well, but not him. And so we did it all over Zoom, and we did it all swapping files on our on our laptops. And that that's the that's the beauty. I mean, that's why I'm not kind of quite such a luddite. I, I, you get pretty adept at recording stuff and pinging it to and fro. But we just needed a, a label to to put it out. So so we've uh, so we've done that. Are you spoken about like file sharing and stuff like that? That that am I right in saying that's like essentially what you've been doing with Fest and the Mad Men? And for people who don't know, this is a band with former members of Adolescence Di and uh, a former drummer of, of the damned rat scabies. I mean, this is something you've been doing for quite a while. So it's not like a new thing. It's something that you've kind of adapted yeah, yeah. to quite yeah. quite early in kind of like the, the technological technology age. Well, we first, I first started doing it um, with the first Grey Cells album when, when Captain came down here um, and we did it on this table, my kitchen table, basically. And he had a MacBook and I my old laptop was dying. So I, I got a MacBook as well. Just started off on GarageBand and I still use GarageBand up until a couple of years ago. It's perfectly fine for doing bass, you know, and keyboards. You don't need any kind of much, you know, awful dust on that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that was what, 2011, 2012. And the same, you're absolutely right with the Madman. That's how I've done it with them. Just pinging file. They'll send me what Rat's done on the drums. They'll send me a couple of guitar tracks, vocal track, a mix of everything. It's got keyboards in. I fly into Logic on my on my MacBook here, 
and I can sort of mix, you know, the drums up and down or guitars up and down, do, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50 different bass tracks until I'm happy with one. I send a bunch back to them so they can pick and choose what they want. Great way of doing it. Do you miss the studio, though? Uh, I miss the camaraderie of the studio, if there is any camaraderie in the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> it's nice to swap ideas about in real time. And it's nice to create something with three or four people in a room all coming from the same kind of mindset. It's a bit more difficult when you're isolated, but you get used to doing that. You know, that's what you get used to doing. In a way, it's not much different from the way that all, all the session musicians did it in six years. They didn't know what they were going to do. They came in, they were given the music, and they kind of in, interpreted it off the top of their head. I mean, I miss going to Rockfield because Rockfield was just immense fun. You could get away with anything at Rockfield. It, it was a good, fun place to be. But the nice thing about doing it like this is you've got, you haven't got one eye on a clock. You, know, you haven't got the producer get, getting a bit antsy because... He, he wants to get home to feed his baby or something. If you want to knock out a, a track at three o'clock in the morning, you can. That's why I, I enjoy doing it. And, you, you know, I, I can do as many bass takes as I want to without people saying, right, that's quite enough, Gray. Now bugger off and let someone else do something. I've embraced it because you have to embrace it. Otherwise, I'd have done bugger all for the last 10 years, really. Apart yeah. from a few times I've been back with the, with the Damden studio. Well, let's talk about a time before COVID was a, a twinkle in a bat's eye. Uh, you grew up around Southend-on-Sea in Essex, and I've read from, a, from some interviews where you, you said a single gig kind of changed your life, and that was watching Hawkwind. For people who don't know, Hawkwind had a bass player, uh, Nade Lemming. Uh, yeah, that one from the motor, uh, Motorhead. What was it like watching kind of a guy like that at the early stages? Did you think, ah? Oh, this guy's clearly gonna gonna make it because Lemming's been around for quite a while. He was roadieing and he was doing other gigs as well. Well, he didn't look like he lived in Leon C, where I live. That's for sure. <laughs> None of them did, which was the the lure of it, you know. Because where I'm from, Leon C, it's a very nice little place. You you know, it's an old fishing village, but it was suburbia. You know, my mate's dad's. You know, they probably worked up in London in a bank or something. And the thought of getting up at half six every morning and getting the train at half seven and doing that every day of your life was just awful. I saw Hawk, I mean, I was only 13, I think, when I saw Hawk. When I went by myself, it was a revelation because they it was a space ritual tour um, and had Stacia dancing and they had, uh, you know, the ludicrously brilliant light show. Imagine at 13 when you're just sort of used to watching your neighbours mow the lawn every Sunday morning and wash the car. 
it, it, this was kind of a completely new, different world. It was quite dangerous and it was quite exciting and it was quite revelatory. And, you know, I love the shape of his bass, which is still the reason I play Rick and that. I just love the shape, even more than the sound. A lot of it, that stuff is um, down to aesthetics for me. I'm, I'm kind of quite big on aesthetics. Even if it sounds shit and looks good, I'll play it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that that, that was the, the kind of... Uh, the awakening for me and then you know i bought the records and i and I, I like the way he constructed his bass lines you know it was kind of part part rhythm part lead and a bit of bass that kind of set me off on the path really you know if, if it wasn't for him i may well not have had the career that i've had did you ever get the opportunity to to speak to him and tell him this yeah i have yeah like loads of times yeah and, and I mean, is he a guy who takes compliments well or is he just like, uh, I don't care? I do remember the first time I met him when early 76 or late 75. And I was only 16 and we, we were playing with Dingwalls with the new Hot Rods and he was in the audience. And our manager came back so somebody you might like to meet out there and he and took me out. And there was Lemmy sort of lounging against the the, the post by the, um, by the fruit machines. You know, he... Loved all that rock and roll stuff, you know, and, you know, the MC5 and all, all the stuff, the, the stuff I was being introduced to. But I was, always found him really approachable. And, of course, you know, he, he was he hung out with the Damned a lot and then later on they, they toured a lot together. So, so how did you go from a kid who's locking up at the stage to, to picking up the bass and, and playing in, in Eddie and Hot Rods? I mean, what was that transition? Was it a case that you were just trying other bands, loads of bands, and just trying to make it? Or was it a case no, of... Those band I... I auditioned for. I, I had a band with some mates, Crimson Sunset. There you go. I remember the name. I don't think I've ever told anybody else that before. Just came back to me. We're, some, we're a couple of mates at school, and we did one one gig support, um, at the Tilbury Dockers Club <laughs> when they had all the, the big container ships at Tilbury. Because I Love You by Slade was one song we did. I think Little Wing was another. Anyway, we did we did one gig. And that was it. But the Horrors was the first band that I joined, you know, and that was pity by luck. Just by seeing that in the back of a local paper, summing up the courage to phone it up and then being asked down for audition the next day at Dr. Fielder's place on, on Canby Island. And, you know, I was lucky enough to uh, to get the nod for it. And, and it went from there, you know, incredibly lucky, right place, right time. The band itself, it, it probably never went off in in like, success chart wise i mean you you had success but it, it wasn't like it was going to set you for life however you you got the opportunity to tour and i'm kind of interested to know you went to america in 77 <coughs> and toured with two iconic bands in the talking heads and the ramones and and when you go on a tour like that at such a young age not knowing what your future holds are you like fuck it i'm just going to go crazy i'm never going to come to america and tour again like this like just go big or were you kind of like this is business I'm, I'm focused. I want to. I want to make a. This is going to be my career. I want to. I want to look respectable. Yeah. How was it like going to America at such a young age, touring with these two bands? Well, it, it was definitely a. I mean, we knew fuck all about the business. I mean, why would you want to know about that? Which we all rue the day now that we thought like that. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, we're like kids in a candy shop. Why wouldn't you be? You know, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and you get thrown into a. 56 dates in 52 days from coast to coast in America, and you fill your boots as much as you can in, in every sense of the word. And 
again, you know, coming from pretty laid back place like South End, a, a pretty kind of middle class background into the the delights of um, American hedonism was was something that, that we all fully embraced. And why not? I mean, what was it like touring with a band like the Ramones who play like nearly 30 songs in an hour set and keep things really tight to like seeing a showman like Dave, David from the Talking Heads? Are you looking at their stagecraft and going, I'm going to take parts of what they've done and bring it with myself as, as you never, come back to never UK? Never thought like that. No, no don't think any, anybody in the Hot Rods. We, we, we treated the whole thing as one massive laugh from start to finish. There was never trying to be like anybody. That was the great thing about the Hot Rods. There was no master plan behind it, unlike some bands I could mention. <laughs> um, we'll get to them, don't worry. Popular punk groups. That, um, that absolutely no no guiding hands, you know, no, no machinations. Much like the Damned, you know, that that's the reason I really love the Damned, because they were untamable as well. We, we did totally totally our own thing the the Ramones and the Talking Heads I think they all thought we were animals (laughs) because we were I I forget a lot of it but we would we fully embraced the rock and roll lifestyle just put it that way Um, every band that I played with or we played with until the damned we were far more over the top than any of them the damn word (laughs) were the exception UFO were pretty lively as well later on but uh you know, I was lucky that all all the bands have been have been you know very individual and kind of unique in their own way. But no, I was never really copying anybody at all. Am I right in saying that Barry Masters nearly contributed to giving Jerry Moan third degree burns? Joey had a cold one night, and I remember it, it was in the theatre in Passaic, New Jersey. Um, this lovely big old theatre, and he had a cold or flu or something. They were in the dressing room next to me. He was coughing his guts up, and Barry goes, oh, "I've got to sort the bloke out. Yeah, I can't fucking go on stage like that." So he went. And he said, "Hey, Joey," he said, "Get a towel, mate. Get a kettle. Boil some water up, and put the towel over your head. Breathe in the steam. You know that'll clear all that gunk in your nose and help clear your throat and everything." So Joe goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, thanks, man." And anyway. He gets hold of a kettle or something, and then ten minutes later, we, we hear these sort of screams from next door. What the hell is going on in there? And Barry goes have a look in, and, and he says, "You dozy fucker!" He said, "You're not meant to keep your head over the kettle when it's boiling. You meant just breathe in the steam." And he was sat there with the with the steam like blistering all his face up. I suppose indirectly he was responsible for giving him. I don't think it was third degree burns, but he certainly had a few blisters on his head. <laughs> uh, perhaps not the bright the brightest sparks in the uh, in a packet, but uh, <laughs> uh, no. no. Nice enough. I remember another night, um, I forget where he was, Didi was at the front of the stage and he did his one, two, three, four thing, you know. He went to hit the strings and missed and fell <laughs> flat on his face off the stage into the pit. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs>
on to the damned, I want to very quickly talk about a UK quiz show called Nevermind the Buzzcocks. Uh, for people outside the UK, this was probably one of the most brutal TV quiz shows that were going at the time. And they used to, the, the comedians used to destroy the contest, contestants who came on. And you were part of it with Barry as members of the Hot Rods. And the idea was that they had to exp- guess who you were resigning under where are they now kind of yeah so i mean how did you take that did you find it like a insulting or did you like just go ah fuck it it is it's it's a bit laughing let's just go let's just go and see what happens we got royally pissed in the green room with um mark lamar and oh, what's his name sean he's dead now uh sean irish comedian yeah um before the show it's like everything we did we just approached it as a complete laugh Let's kind of move on to the damn then, because you, you've spoken before about being a fan of the band before you joined them, but you don't necessarily enjoy the punk scene. You've kind of vaguely touched on the Pistols and the Clash a little bit. What was it about the Damned, in your opinion, that made them stand out from those other kind of major bands as they're seen now? They were just absolutely real. They were the same on stage as off stage. You know, there was no master plan. They were just incendiary, and I really liked them as people. You know, they were absolutely genuine in everything that they did. I love the music. You know, I love the songs. I lo- love the way they played, um, and I love their attitudes. It, it was, uh, you know, just just a sensational band. I used to go and see them all the time. You know, and Rat and Captain would come and see the Hot Rods, and we trade insults with each other. You know on and off stage and you know we're all good mates so were you there like at the start like kind of those hundred club days in in like 76 we we, was you there around that time well yeah the hot rods were the first band to be called punk whatever you think punk is you know yeah what what is punk you know everybody's got a different interpret punk to me is the kinks Punk to me is the chocolate watch band, all those nuggets bands. You know, they were called punk. So were the dolls and the Iggy Pop in Assembly 2. And then so was Lou Reed. You well, know, punk wasn't the actual word or term wasn't anything new. I don't really like asking that question, what do you think punk is? Because you're right. I think everyone has their own interpretation. But for me, I, I would even say that like Helter Skelter by the Beatles is, is for me probably one of my favorite punk tracks. Because I think it's just crazy at the time when it was released. They've never done anything like that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And to me, that that's punk. Like a band that decides to do something a little different out there, not knowing what's going to happen. That's pretty punk. There's a clip of Joe Strummer who who read a thing a little bit in Time Out, I think. It's on YouTube. And he said, the first time I heard punk is, is when I saw this thing about Edina Hot Rods. And they said, uh, punk rock band. And he said, what, what is this punk? What, you know, what, what is this thing called punk? Um, and he, he had a band called the 101ers hmm. at the time. We played with them at this great old pub called the Nashville in Old Court, Kensington. I think one one week we'd headline and next week they, they'd headline. And that was in October 75, before Joe, you know, saw the pistols and said, that's it, I'm going to now form a punk band. You know, it was all... Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I was there right from the beginning which which is why i look on with wry amusement at um a, a lot of people's comments about the the whole thing because it, it's not all entirely correct you know there's a, a lot of uh, journalistic nonsense uh talked about the whole thing what particularly do you think's nonsense the term punk was i think it was caroline coon or nick kent or judy birchall and tony parsons and all that kind of got hold of the of the term, as journalists do, you know, they like to put things in little, little boxes. And to me, 
music is music. If you like, it's all rock and roll. It's all the same three bloody chords. You know, th- there's a lot of unnecessary kind of stuff talked about it. You know, you go back, you listen, like the, the Beatles were three chords. Chuck Berry was three chords. Kinks, you know, again, the Kingsman, I think a fantastic kind of example of a garagey punk, but kind of garagey stuff to me. It was when the the kind of machinations, you know, got in the way of of, um, of everything and it became more of a, sh- a fashion thing than about the music. And then it turned into Oi, which I absolutely hated. I like pop songs, you know, I've always liked melody. That's one thing that has gone through the thread of, all of us in the damned, you know, me, Dave, Captain and Rat, you know, we, we we like we like melody, you know, melody and energy. And that's the kind of the one common thing. Well, the main thing I share with Captain is that kind of like of all those 60s bands and, and Dave as well. So you left the Hot Rods in 1980 to join the Damned. Touring with the Damned, I, I can only guess what that was like uh, I, I mean i i've heard stories of uh basically rat scabies being obsessed with setting things on fire <laughs> what is it like touring with unpredictable characters i suppose is, is, a, is a way to frame it <laughs> well you wonder whether you're gonna you know wake up dead one morning <laughs> <laughs> it was it was pretty on the edge but that, you know for the for the best part that that was part of the joy of it it, it it was not a boring lifestyle. Anything could happen and frequently did, both uh, on and off stage. So, you know, it was the best education a, a young man can have, I think, being in being in that group. You know, you, you grow up and learn a lot quickly, being surrounded by those characters and the other characters in your kind of, uh, in your orbit. What do you think was like the, the best lesson you learned during your time, original time with the Damned? Have eyes in the back of your head. <laughs> At all times, you could write a book on it. it it's impossible to say. It, it was, um, everybody knows what the characters in the Damned were like at that particular time. So it doesn't take too much imagination to figure out what it was like being surrounded by them pretty much 24 hours a day. It was lively, <laughs> is the best way to describe it. So the first album you recorded with the band was the Black Album, an album that has one of my favourite songs of all time, and that's Wait for the Blackout. I, like, I, I adore that track. The album itself still had its punk sound with Hit and Miss, Sick of This and Drinking With My Baby, but it definitely started seeing the band shift musical tones. I mean, the last track of the album, Current Call, 17-minute like kind of prog rock epic. I mean, what was there any like nervousness within the band making that kind of genre shift? The Dam never got nervous about a single thing in all the time that I've been with them. We just did what we wanted to do, which again goes back to why I really like the Dam because there was nobody saying, you've got to make a record like this. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Didn't happen. Nobody could tell the Dam what to do. It was fantastic. So we just did what we wanted to, and we were lucky to be with Chiswick Records, um, who basically gave us enough rope, and luckily we didn't hang ourselves with it. We all wrote songs, you know, we all wrote stuff, and we all swapped it about, and we went in and we knocked it out, and what we thought worked best ended up on the record, which is why it was so diverse and eclectic. As a musician, you want to be creative. I mean, what was it like being in kind of that group of people where they also have the same idea of, let's just fuck around with shit, let's just see what we get. You've, you've been in multiple bands. Like, have you been in a situation since that where you've had the opportunity 
kind of just play around because the pe- the rest of the guys in the band have the same kind of ideology of fuck it, let's just see what we create. Probably not. No, I mean we had a, a fair bit of that with with UFO, but it 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 was more channeled. That the the damned was the great thing about the damned was we could write anything and play any way we wanted to, and it, it's why that. The Black Album especially, it, it was an immensely creative time. Just very, very lucky that we all kind of gelled at that particular time together. You know, we'd go down to pub, have a good few babies, come back and just play all night, basically. We experimented. There was, you know, there was harpsichords there, there was grand pianos, there was tubular bells. We got people play brass down. It was like, well, let's try anything. Why stick to, you know... Just guitar. And, you know, lucky enough, we got away with it and, and people liked it. But you, you you can't really define creativity, just something that happens when you've got people who are in the right frame set working, bouncing off each other. You know, it's it's something that I, I can't put a finger on it. It, it just works beautifully. the album and you came back into the studio and you recorded strawberries i mean what changed between those two records for you to to go i I, i'm going because you've left you've essentially leaving money on the table a relatively steady gig that's a big decision i mean what happened for for you to to have to clean your hands of the whole thing yeah i wouldn't say i was leaving money on the table okay (laughs) (laughs) there was never much money about in the damned it was just time for change but I mean, was you like psychologically tired? Was it like creatively tired? The dynamics in the band have changed as they do in lots of bands over the years. There have been various situations that were unnecessary. You know, they've been well documented. I'm not going to rake over them anymore. And I just thought, bugger it. You know, it, it wasn't as much fun as it had been. The whole reason I was doing it really was for fun. And the whole reason I still do it really is for fun because it, it's a great way to try and earn a living. I put in try there because <laughs> it's not always that easy. Um, you know, why stick around it if you're unhappy? You know, I up, up sticks and um, and uh, join UFO. During that period then, was it a case of I'm leaving and then open up your little black book and find another project? Or are you kind of working in the background going, I know I'm going to leave. I need another gig. Let's, let's do things in the back channels. Oh, I can't remember. It, I, I think I just um, just reached the stage. I thought, you know, fuck it. This isn't the fun it used to be. Um, it was all getting, you know, a fair bit of grief going on in the background. And so at the same time, I got a call from the UFO guitarist who I knew because he lived in Cardiff where I, I live near there. And he, he said, oh, we need a our bass player's going back to America, we're doing this world tour. Do you, do you fancy joining us? So um, I did. <laughs> it was as simple as that. What's it like going into a band that you know is not your band? Like, is it like the first day of school? <laughs> you coming in a bit sheepish and you're finding your way. 
I really get nervous. It takes a lot to get me nervous. Um, but that that was pretty nerve wracking because I only knew Paul Chapman, a guitarist. I mean, obviously, I knew the band UFO, but I didn't really know any of their songs apart from Doctor Doctor, which was on every pump jukebox. You know, they weren't on my radar at all. But I, I knew Paul really well, and I and I liked him, and we used to go out and get happily drunk together in Cardiff, and you know, raise a bit of merry hell. Went to see their manager up in London. And he just gave me a bunch of albums. Said, "Learn this, learn, learn this. Here's a ticket. Your plane goes tomorrow." And I flew out. And, and the the first show they were playing was this massive, great sports arena somewhere in Spain. It was huge. And I thought, it kind of hit me, you know, Jesus Christ, this is massive. And I just spent a week on tour with them. They had a bloke called Billy Sheen playing bass. Uh, Pete Way left, and, and Billy joined. Um, Billy's a brilliant bass player, but he, he was too a bit too kind of a bit too flowery for UFO. They needed somebody a, a, a bit rootsier. The strongest thing he ever took was a black coffee, which <laughs> wasn't really on the radar of UFO in the the, the, the list of stimulants. So um, he'd had enough after after a couple of weeks, and I just spent a week week on tour with them, learning the songs based on what from watching them play. They were playing two nights of this arena in Athens, but he, but he played one night and I played the second night. And on the second night, Phil the singer had pretty much a nervous breakdown on stage. I mean, they'd been touring for five, six, seven years nonstop and they were pretty kind of shattered from it all. You know, a bit of this to keep them up, a weight, a bit of that to get get to sleep and it all, all got a bit much. And then the bottles started coming and the coins started coming. I thought it's like being back of the day. Bloody damn hell, this stuff being loved on the stage. I thought I got away from all that. Did you start feeling so, nostalgic? Yeah, that, so the next day we flew back and, and the band split up. So my, <laughs> my world tour was like half a gig in Athens. But anyway, Phil, the singer, went in and got himself together and we had another five years of it. And it, it was great. I loved, loved them. Lo- lovely, lovely people. Really, really nice people. To me, as I'd said before, it's all rock and roll. You know, it's all, if it's got melody and I can add something to it, you know, I'll I'll probably like it. I like, I like melody, and there was a lot of melody in UFO. And he, he used to come down to my house in Cardiff and go, "Yeah, you can't hear that old punk stuff you didn't play. You know, <laughs> you know that that stuff with the damned." And you go, oh, "I like that bit, like that bit." And I had some bits I'd written that were never used, and they ended, ended up on the on the next UFO album. It was all. It's all the same, you know, three, four chords. It's just some's a bit, some bands play a bit slower with a different melody line on top than others. So I'm not sure how fondly you remember this this bit, though. I mean, tell me about how you how you tried to help Andrew Ridley, formerly of Wham, <laughs> kind of create a rock album. I mean, how, that that's a weird transition. I mean, how did that even come about? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a bit weird. Well, a mate of mine worked in an advertising agency in London and so did a bloke who played guitar who was a session player and he happened to be working on Andrew Ridge's album, Whammered Split, and Sony in their infinite wisdom had offered Andrew the same deal as George Michael. Um, clearly blissfully unaware that, that one of them was um, pretty talented and the other was possibly rather less so. <laughs> <laughs> He said, "Oh, we're looking for Andrew looking for a bass player. He wants somebody that that's got a bit of a hard, hard edge rock style." And, and my mate even said, "Oh, I know somebody, Paul. You know, played with the Damned in UFO." So I got a call a few days later from one of um, Andrew's three managers. <laughs> uh, 
He had three of them. Johnny, Johnny Fowler, I like Paul, Johnny Fowler here, Andrew's manager. And it was, he, he phoned up two or three times but before I actually spoke to him because I thought it was amazing. I, who is this? Who's it? You know, take, who is it? I didn't think anybody would phone me up, I suppose, Andrew Ridgely. I mean, who would? <laughs> so I just thought it was somebody taking a piss and put the phone down until eventually I, I copped on. And yeah, I mean, I, I went up to London and, and to the, uh, it was Jethro Tull's studio, uh, Maison Rouge. And there was no one there. And I walked in the studio and the, the desk was strewn with like ACDC and Enough's Enough and Black Sabbath and Def Leppard CDs. I thought it's a wrong studio here. So I went out and asked reception the girl. said, no, no, that's Andrew's studio. I thought, what the fuck's going on here? And he wanted to make a rock record, you know, hence me being roped in. So I ended up going to Japan with him for a couple of weeks and doing all these videos. And uh, I think it sold, you know, four copies possibly. <laughs> it was direct family. But he paid handsomely. It, it was the, the, the most I've got paid for least work ever. <laughs> do, do you have a copy of the album? Do, do you still have it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get people to dig it It's out on YouTube. That there's Japanese TV. Because we went over to Japan. We were there for something like two weeks, 10 days, two weeks all on Sony Records at this, you know, stupidly posh hotel, being taking these stupidly posh clubs um, every night. And and, uh, everything was charged to Sony. And all we did is work one day at the end, doing these endless, the same two songs, Red Dress and something else, in this club in Tokyo. And each television, instead of going to televisions to do the, the miming, the televisions came to television stations came to club. And they all came in and set up exactly the same gear and exactly the same lights. You get to hang about while they did it all. And then you'd play the same couple of songs. They break it all down. You twiddle your thumbs and another TV lot will come in. This went on for like 12 hours or 14 hours or something on the last day. And the rest of the time, we were just out getting pissed. It was great fun. <laughs> she wears a red dress. don't mind me asking if you you can talk about kind of your um tinnitus because for people who don't know it's a kind of it's it's something where about hearing noises that uh, that are not caused by sound coming from the outside world so it can sound like ringing buzzing washing humming that kind of stuff i mean when did you notice it and at what point did you think oh this this could be a legitimate issue for me and how i make a living um, I mean, my ears had rung for ages after shows. You know, you just get used to it. You think, oh, it's all part of the territory. But most of it, the damage was done from 
wearing those things you've got on, you know, headphones, because I, I had a T-app port studio, four-track four cassette studio, which we all had back in those days before computers. And I'd be up every night writing songs, making, putting stuff down. And um, your ears get tired, you know, and you turn the volume up, you turn the treble up, so that everything gets a bit duller, then you turn the mid up. You have a few beers. I didn't know at the time, but alcohol deadens the top end of your hearing as well. So um, it, it all started adding up. And so I take the headphones off at, you know, three, four, five in the morning. You know, I'll go, go to bed, you know, be gone the next day. And then till it's not gone the next day. And then you think, oh, fuck, you know, just crack on with it. And, I, you know, I was stupid. I, I ignored it. I, I monitored far too loudly. I played too loudly. You know, with Steve Nock, Nickel and Rat, they were both cymbal merchants and they both smashed merry head out of their kits. And my right ear was always next to the cymbal, which is my worst ear now. Probably the mid, mid-90s, early, early to mid-90s, I started noticing it. And what really kicked in, I was doing a... I used to go out with Captain, um, Captain Sensible's Ugly Sods, and we used to go around Europe just for a laugh. We didn't make any money, but we used, used to get fabulously pissed and just play all these great little clubs in France and Germany and stuff. And there was a club in Germany we played and there was a new sound system just been installed and a bloke on a monitor desk clearly didn't know what he was doing. And a couple of songs in there, there was this huge shriek of feedback and I just had to be standing right in front of the monitor. Um, and it literally knocked me backwards. I mean, it literally knocked me, I, I staggered backwards and shoved some bog paper in me, but that was the damage done and my has never been the same since. And have you ever been worried, like, that's it? Like, I, I've... I've... Yeah, I stopped playing a few years after that. I mean, uh, from 96, I think, was my last show with The Damned. I didn't really play again until 2014, 15 years later. I, I couldn't get near a stage in a drum kit. It was, I still really struggle on tour now, but I wear earplugs all the time or in-air monitors, which kind of helps a bit. But it, it's it's really tough. It's not the tinnitus so much. I, I've got used to that, even though it's 24 hours a day. It's something called hyperacusis, which is um, a, an increased sensitivity to certain sounds, which is basically high frequencies. Those sort of noises go right through me. Kids screaming, dogs barking, air brakes, people clapping. Is all, my, my eardrums literally rattle. And that's what frazzles me more than the tinnitus. And, of course, when you're on tour, you've got those noises all the time. I have, I have to be pretty careful about managing the noise that I'm subjected to. Um, it's one of the reasons I live out in, in the sticks. I'm away from the, the town because towns just do me in, they're too noisy. Can't get on the underground with, without big bits of wax in my ears in London. Does my head in. I can't imagine how something you've done all your all your life and all of a sudden stopping because you have to for your own health. I mean, that must have yeah, been Yeah, I mean, it, it was, um, I had a couple of really black years. You know, it probably contributed to my first divorce because... All of a sudden, my you know, it's what I did. It, it wasn't just a job or career. It's what I did, you know. I couldn't do anymore, and I didn't know what else I could do because everything I'd done had been around music. So I got into a pretty dark place with it, and there's no cure for it. You know, I had all the – I went through every therapy going, you know, had all the counselling. I read all the books. I did absolutely everything, and nothing worked. And the only thing that really works when you've got – got it like I have, it is acceptance. And it took me 10 years to kind of get to that stage. So, and that's that's kind of really when I got into the gardening stuff. I went out and I did a bunch of courses at, at local college on the organic gardening and planting trees and, sh- trees and shrubs and, that, and 
went and did some work in um, the, these nice old sort of 17th century, 18th century gardens and stuff just to get away from everything. It wasn't easy, but, you know, I, I kind of, I got back into it after somebody got me together with Alan Lee Shaw, who played with uh, the, the dam for a couple of years, not of this earth and that. And we, and we started writing some songs, songs together and did a, did an album together called um, Mischief. We couldn't tour it because of my hearing situation, but that kind of eased me back into it. How prevalent do you think it is within the music industry and it's just not really spoken about? Because like like you said, it sounds like, like you had a real tough period with it and, and like there must be so many musicians out there who, who are dealing with what you're dealing with but don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been put in touch with a few. I don't know anybody in the hot rods that had it. As far as I know... Nobody in the dam's got it. I mean, Captain might have it a little bit. Nobody in UFO had it. It's it's kind of luck of the draw. It's like, you know, you can smoke 20 fags a day and get away with it or smoke two a day and get lung cancer. You, and you can be born with hard or soft eardrums. And if your eardrums are, are, are kind of soft, they're more susceptible to hearing damage is one of the ways it, it was explained to me. Do you know, it's your physiology. Some people are, are more prone to, you know, medical conditions than others. And... I just happened to be draw the short straw as far as hearing problems went. But a lot of it was my own fault because I just played too bloody loud. And most of it was done through monitoring. You know, you, you get a good idea, knocking a song out. Yeah, that's great. Turn it up a little bit. And you turn it up a bit more. And I can remember just turning it up and up and up and up. And at the same time, touring, you know, on, on planes and having Walkmans on, having them up to drown out the sound of the engines. I, I had headphones on a lot, and that's what really did the damage. So people listen to this podcast, just turn it down a little bit, save, save your ears. I, I spent 12, 15 years working for the Musicians' Union when I ducked out of uh, music, and until I left to rejoin the dam four years ago. I was the regional organiser for Wales and Southwest England, and I used to go around colleges and, and uh, sometimes do talked about, you know, the music industry and being a band to students. And I always used to say to them, you know, stick your hands up. The reason I'm here and not up on the ramp is because I fucked my ears. Anybody here who's ever had their ears rattle or ring. And I kid you not, every college I went to, probably six six out of ten kids would put their hands up. And and they're, these are kids of 16, 17, maybe 18. And it took me a good 10 years to get that damage. And they're getting it from airbuds. Pretty scary. I want to start wrapping up now because we've come up to the hour and I'm very aware. Yeah, it's going to be depressing, isn't it? (laughs) Let's keep it light. I have to get a beer. (laughs) So these are the last couple of questions. So you you kind of, you went back to the dam, then you start performing live and you've gone back into the studio with them and, and recorded with them. Was it a case of like, absence makes the heart grow fonder was that what it was like i was not about that <laughs> <laughs> um after doing the the uh the gray cells album with captain i mean every, every time the dam camp the kind of i used to go and see them you know for the last 20 years and quite often i you know i'd jump up on stage go, oh come on okay paul come do a song with so you know, we were always kind of, Captain and I were pretty much always in touch. So when he phoned up and, and said, you know, Stu's left, we're, we're going to New York to do an album. Well, actually, it wasn't at New York then, but we're going to do an album probably with Tony Visconti. I know you think we're a bunch of old 
beep, beep, beeps, but would you be interested in, in playing bass? I mean, you, you you don't really sort of sit back and think, well, I'll get back to you next week. You know, it, it, it went, ooh, sounds good, you know. And within a nanosecond, I said, um, damn right. It was really good fun because I hadn't met Pinch before. Well, I had met Pinch with a couple of gigs that I jumped up with them, but, you know, I never worked with him. And it was fun, you know, it was really fun going, going to... Uh, going to New York for a couple of weeks and being thrown completely in the deep end because I only got the song sent through about a week before. Um, and I didn't know which songs they were going to do. There was about 20 bits and pieces on there. So, yeah, it was great. And and then the, the kind of touring, you know, I think Dave said, oh, you're up for doing a tour, you know. Well, still working for the MU and I did a tour. And, I, and then I thought, well, you know, what, what am I? I'm now 60, you know, I've done this for like, a dozen years within air monitors I can handle being on stage for an hour an hour and a half you know I keep everything really low volume so I thought well sod it let's go back for where I started so you know I went back the damned and then six months later bloody Covid hit (laughs) I wasn't banking on that one this is the last question then so you've got a free evening and you can call any one of your former bandmates to go for a beer Who, who are you calling for a beer I'd probably call Steve Nichol actually it was the Hot Rods drummer. Why so? Probably because everything was new and shiny and exciting and the world was at our feet. And, and we both used to share a room together in, in the early days. How can I put it? We, we had fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be nice to kind of reminisce about the, um, you know, we, we've done a few Hot Rods reunions over the last few years. Unfortunately, either when members have died, you know, or just before members have died, you know, Dave Higgs, our original guitarist, and Barry have gone, bless them. So that was good to do. And it's always been, I mean, we've never had any rehearsals before. We've just gone on and we picked up where we left off 40 years ago. It's incredible. So that that kind of bonding is you can't really explain it. So, yes, yeah, Steve was always great fun. Um, and we, we you know, being a rhythm section together and, and touring the world at, at 17. I think he was a year or two older than me. Yeah, po- probably Steve. In fact, I can't think of many people I wouldn't call up, actually. I mean... What about Andrew Ridley? Give him a call? Probably not. <laughs> Paul, thank you for giving up so much of your time and I've really enjoyed this chat. And um, yeah, it's been it's been grand. And thank you and thank you for the gardening. Seriously, it, it helps me so much. So thank you for, for doing that. Oh, good. All right, no worries, Thank you so much to Paul for giving up his time and talking to me. Now I want you to give up two seconds of your time and go give this podcast a rate and review on whatever podcast streaming service you are using. It really does help the podcast grow. Also, why not WhatsApp this episode to five of your mates who are big damn fans and tell them your life depends on this and also so does our friendship. Make it that stark. We're living in times where where shit is happening that whereabouts is kind of raising our tension. So why not threaten your friendship over a substandard podcast? Very quickly, thank you so much to Jake here for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you don't know about Jay, I spoke to him in previous episodes. He does fantastic work with his organization, No Sweat. 
and also Punk Ethics. He is putting on a fantastic show at the 100 Clubs to raise awareness for Punks Against Sweatshop, a great initiative whereabouts we are trying as a collective to stop touring bands from using sweatshop uh, workers who are creating t-shirts for bands go and support them if you can go pick up your tickets for their 100 club show one of my favorite comedians of all time mark thomas is performing sadly i don't think i'm going to be able to make it due to work commitments but i will be there in spirit so go pick up your tickets now there will be a link in the episode description of this podcast right i'll be back soon enough if you're lucky enough to be going to a punk show like the hundred club go to that show and you see someone fall down you pick them right back up again until next time bye bye Smash it up! Smash it up!